Welcome to La Cura Podcast. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. La Cura will take you on a journey at the intersection of health, healing, and social justice. We will engage in conversations about decolonizing our health and reclaiming traditional ways of well-being and healing. We will explore and honor our multiple identities, cultures, traditions, and remedios. This offering is brought to you by Mi Gente, a political home of Latinx and Chicanx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-poor, pro-queer, because our communities are all that and more. Welcome to La Cura, everybody. Super excited to have a friend of mine today, somebody who I've known for actually a really long time. We were just talking about how long, it's about over a decade um, Jocelyn Ifacola de Edmonds. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about him. He is a professor of Africana Studies at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He is also an Ifa priest called Baba Lao. He has been initiated priest for over 15 years. His areas of focus are African history and practical application of African diaspora, spiritual and martial arts systems. Jasan earned the rank of professor in the art of Capoeira Angola de Chao Bento Grande. Um, he's also a proficient Afro-Caribbean stick fighter of Kalinda and Makulele. And Baba Jasan is also the Oluo of Ibin Ka Ifa Temple, where he works to help the South Central Los Angeles community through healing rituals, ebo, and spiritual remedies. And Jasan is my Ifa brother. We've known each other for about 12 or so years, and I'm just super humbled and happy to know you, Jocelyn. Welcome. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I invited Jocelyn because I really wanted to talk capoeira. As many of you might know of, heard of capoeira, but might not know more of the deeper meaning, the history, the spirituality of it, the liberation, Black liberation aspects of it. I first learned about capoeira when I was in college a long time ago. And I had a teacher, I was probably a sophomore or so, who was actually, had teachers in Brazil. And that's the first time I ever heard of the Orisha. And I felt really, as reflecting on it, I was really happy that this particular teacher named them uh, or named some of the aspects of it. He didn't go deeply into it. He also wasn't an Ifa or Lukumi uh, Orisha worshiper, but that was a long time ago. And I would have been shocked to to have been told at that point that I was going to be in this spiritual path. That's why I wanted to invite you here to talk a bit more about some of those connections. And so you've been doing Caboira for a couple decades now, right? How did you come into this path? Interestingly enough, I've been studying martial arts all my life. I've been a fan of it, and I've been studying Taekwondo for years. Uh, this is when I was in high school, before high school, whatever. I was As I was coming out of high school, I, got, I did an audition, and I was um, in a film called, I think it was Secret Bodyguard with Ernie Reyes Jr. And when I was on set... There's stuff that happens behind the scenes on the set of like an action movie or a martial arts movie. Like there are literally people who are like, oh man, I'll spar you. I'll beat your A. You know, like that's happening. And 
people are literally doing stuff like, oh, I bet I'm, I'm going to bet. Uh, so I, I saw I met a guy, uh, one of my friends later becomes one of my friends. His name's Bope, uh, Brian, uh, Bobby Hamilton, excuse me. And um, Bobby comes in, uh, African-American dude, and he just he's doing all these movements. And I was like, dude, what is that? And the thing that mystified me the most was he was like challenging all these Kung Fu guys. He's like, yeah, let's fight. Let's fight. What's up? What's like, he was baiting them. And then they'd be like, all right, what's up? And they do their whole rigid stance and then they kick. And he did this, he had this move where he literally would catch their foot and stand on one hand and kick them with his other foot while he was in a handstand. I think we call it Alchibata. But I would I, I would watch him do this and he would like serve everybody with that one move. And I was like, how are you doing this? And that was that was the beginning of the love affair. Um, interestingly enough, I approached his teacher who would later become my teacher, like after years, literally, because yeah, it was so much politics. Anyhow, um, I met my soon-to-be teacher. His name's Dennis Newsom, also known as Master Pretovelli. I met him. We were part of the same organizations. I uh, joined an organization called the Pan-African Associations of America, and we would have different events. And my capoeira teacher was part of that group, that organization. And it wasn't until maybe two or three years after I asked him to, to join and learn that he accepted because he, he recognized and saw me in the community and recognized my character. And then he let me in. But it was weird. During that period, after I saw the art, I would have these dreams. And in the dreams, mm. I was kicking and flipping. It's <laughs> amazing. And I had those dreams for probably about three years until I actually started training. What does the word capoeira mean? You know, um, I've heard many different meanings to flutter, to flutter about. I've heard capoeira, capoeira. People have said that capoeira is derived from a Kikongo word, which is capoeira. What I more, what I more understand is the Angolo dance, which some people say that it was a mating dance in like the Congo, Congo, the Central African region. And that is where the art was derived from, the zebra dance. Also heard, I remember uh, Professor Zumbi, Cedric Adams, one of my uh, mentors and friends, also a student of my teacher. I remember he would say that capoeira means to disappear. Simply, he would say that. And then I remember hearing that the word also meant like this high grass where people would go and hide in that that high grass uh, in the savanna. But aside from all of those other meanings, which I'm certain they're accurate, I kind of like the mystery of the meaning to disappear because that has so much, that's such, that's such a potent um, meaning, the ability to to escape, the ability to dance out of your problems. So many, so, so much meaning is just in that 
one meaning of to disappear. But as I said before, all of those other meanings are definitely accurate. But yeah, those are some of the meanings of that word. But it's definitely a creolized word from uh, African origins. And then uh, when the African gets brought to South America or Brazil, it's interestingly enough here in the U.S., there are also martial arts types that are like capoeira. You know, you don't really hear too much about, you know, like there's one called kicking and knocking, trip and mm. flip, uh, jailhouse rock, Stato, 52 blocks. I remember, wow. I remember I, I met a guy from down South from like Alabama, from Carolinas. And I remember he said, Oh, I do a style called Nat Turner. I was like, Nat Turner. Wow. Yeah. Like there's a martial arts style called Nat Turner. And these things, these are styles that people don't, you know, they're not like somebody's putting a sign up and, Oh, I do Nat Turner or I do this. Uh, um, uh, I even heard of a style called spider where people would, they would lay on the ground. And this was like literally laying on the ground like this was their defense position. And it was like, all right, come fight. Let's what's up. And they would get on the ground like this and fight from the ground, kicking and knocking, trip and flip. Those are direct, directly correlated with capoeira. Also, there is some speculation about this dance uh, that came out of Charleston, which was, I believe, associated with, I think it was either a Denmark VC, a slave revolt that was thwarted because um, uh, Europeans, you know, you know, white folks had come in and found some snitches and they snitched out the, the revolution that was going to happen. And there's an individual, I believe his name was, um, I think his name was Gullah Jack. He was also a powerful African martial artist and also a hoodoo practitioner. In terms of that, the style that they did dance called the Charleston, you know, how they're kicking the front and then kicking the yeah, back. Totally. That is also, that was derived from a martial arts that the African wow. people practiced there, you know? So would you say capoeira and then a lot of these other martial arts in places in the South, in the U S and that came from black folks, would you say, they were is a mix of them being developed in the states in as a survival slash resilience practice or do you feel like some of it did actually come from different places in Africa already established and they were still adapted here like I'm curious about some of that history yeah I definitely feel like they they were much of it was developed on the continent and then it was adapted to the situation. But the origin of it is coming out of the continent of Africa. Like, and in, in I, I believe it's on the island of Madagascar. There's another style. And it looks just like capoeira. And it's called mori. And it looks like, it literally looks like capoeira. But it's, they're, they're like cousins. But we see the germ seed of this martial art on the continent of Africa. And then what ends up happening is we see it being adapted to and creolized in the Americas. So it, it, it definitely gets kind of shifted around. 
in the Americas. When we think about capoeira, there's a concept called malicia. And malicia is not about malice. Malicia is actually the ability to deceive, to deceive. And I also look at that as being able to hide in plain sight, the ability of a capoeirista to, in certain areas, they they developed uh, these, like mainly in Bahia, not necessarily in Rio that I know of. In Rio, that's the smart, the area that my style of capoeira comes from is Rio. Capoeira developed in three different areas in Brazil, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Pernambuco, and Bahia. So the main two, the two main prominent areas that we see of capoeira are Bahia and Rio. So in Rio, they developed some other ritualized aspects in the sense of these movements called shamadas. And when they would use the shamada, some there's legend that goes along with it that when the Africans would train the martial art and the slave master would come and see, they would do this move where they would break into a shamada and it would look somewhat like a waltz. And then they would do that and then transform back into the dance uh, or the martial art uh, or training. So that's some of the capoeira legend. But there are other martial aspects that are, or martial principles that can be found within the science of the shamada. But that's, for me, that's not one of the things that um, my style focuses on as much. The style that I do is, it's definitely very, very martial, extremely martial. The history of Black liberation is very much tied to this martial art, too, and curious if you can speak more about that. How the Orisha are informed capoeira practice, but also how capoeira is very much a, was very much tied to Black liberation. Interesting. It, it, you know, there's so much to deal with in terms of that idea of this I, this level of resistance. So before I go into any other thing, like the, first of all, when we look at capoeira and the resistance of African people uh, in Brazil, we have to look at the establishment of um, quilombos, which are basically the, the war camps, Palmares. Basically, in Brazil, Africans were able to liberate themselves from uh, enslavement and establish basically fugitive slave communities, fugitive Africans who were, you know, uh, fugitives of, quote unquote, being enslaved. So they were able to establish these communities that they defended and protected. And they were outside of the the domain of European rule. And the capuristas were the strat the ones who defended and strategized uh, because uh, for a long time it was against the law to practice even candomblé. So we, we talk about the pomades, uh, also uh, the quilombos, and when we fast forward into um, when Africans are manumitted from. Uh, 
slavery, which is with in Brazil happens during the late 1800s. I mean, like literally right before, like something about like 1888, something like that. Something ridiculous is when uh, slavery is manumitted there. And um, the, the, in essence, to practice the culture of capoeira, of candomblé, anything African, it was against the law and potentially punishable by death. And so um, Africans maintained the, you know, they maintained their practice, they maintained their culture and continued to do it and even disguise it. And this has such a reflection on capoeira, mainly in the sense of capoeira, used to be originally it was an art that was done with three drums but because or it was done primarily on the drum or atobaki but because it was against the law when the police came like there's even uh tokis or rhythms on the bidding bow uh that are for warning people that the police are coming. Like we'll be in a hora and if the police are coming or there's a problem, there's a particular rhythm that we play on the bidding bow that everybody who is a capoeira knows, oh, there's trouble. It's time to go. And so what ended up happening is the drum became such a heavy thing to carry. So we developed the bidding bow or adopted that as the primary instrument but it was originally the drum but you know capoeira is so full of resistance you know it we and also it, it epitomized the the struggle for blackness and black identity on so many levels we talk about bizuro manganga um bizuro the word means beetle and when we when we analyze what the word manganga is Manganga is basically a priest in Congo. But when we look at what what uh, the Nganga is in terms of Palo Mayombe, the Nganga is the fetish or the Nkisi or the pot that contains this, this power. And Bizuro Manganga was also that. They said that this he was one of the a very famous capoeirista, and they, the legend has it that bullets could not pass through his body, metal could not pass through his body, no knife, and the only way he was killed was by a snitch who told the white man, "Oh, the way you kill him, you got to use a wooden knife. You got to make a knife out of wood and then treat it, and that's how you can kill him." And that's how he was killed. But he was a freedom fighter. You know, um, there's so many stories of resistance. You know, Madame, uh, there's a guy, um, uh, his name was Madame Satan. Uh, some people say Madame Satan. That was the guy, that was this man's name. Um, my teacher taught me many stories about Madame Satan. And he was actually a, a black trans man who was a capoeirista and a bad like he was 
like he was, you know, he had a, he had lived a very abused life and learned capoeira, and as a result, he was he was like fierce and feared, even by the police out there. There's a there's like a film, there's like a a movie called Madame Sata, uh, and it's loosely based on Madame Satan, which is you know that we need to make more movies about these individuals, but his whole fight was against patriarchy and the police. And he was a a hard, he was a badass capitalista. So, uh, you know, and the, the funny thing is like, people don't really talk about all of that, but that was, that was definitely, you know, that's part of the history and the lineage. And that, those are just some of the people that resisted. And then, Bizuro uh, Manganga, he was totally influenced by Orisha and Congolese tradition. You know, when we talk about the first movement of Capoeira that ties everything together, the Zinga. The Zinga is named after Queen Nzinga of Angola Matamba. That's, that name is in homage to Nzinga, which is a a black woman queen who fought the Portuguese, kept the Portuguese at bay for, uh, I believe, at least 30 to 40 years. And, I mean, that's that's those are just the things in terms of how Capoeira comes about. There's so much power and resistance when we unpack the history of it. And I think that, you know, Anyway, I, I hope I'm answering the questions. I'm like, I'm riffing right now. <laughs> no, you are. You are. And I love that you are because one thing is that it sounds like the Capoeiristas of the very early days of Capoeira mm -hmm. were paying homage to their ancestors and brought their ancestors fully into the evolution of Capoeira from the names of things to the medicine they were using to the spirit guides they were calling in. And then now I think there is, you know, an invitation. I think, I mean, you're not framing it this way, but there is an invitation you're putting out for um, the capoeiristas of, of today to, to do the same, to call in, you know, um, their ancestors, uh, specifically the black capoeiristas, their ancestors of medicine, the, you know, all of that. And I think when we think, when you talk about ancestors, I think sometimes people get, a bit activated or, or maybe triggered around, you know, their own family lineage and their own, you know, great grandparents or whatever sort of harm might have happened in their family. But this is an invitation, I think, for, for you know, lineages and, and for a very long history of Black resistance. And um, it just kind of reminded me of that. I think that the last thing I want to ask, I think, tied to all of this is, I've, I have found in a lot of the conversations I've had with people in this podcast that because of what you said in the Eurocentricity or the freaking, you know, what would you call it, exploitation of, you know, traditions that are very old, that are very either black or, you know, brown, indigenous. Um, because of that, then the philosophy of life of these traditions doesn't get, doesn't get translated into then other spaces or doesn't actually make it into 
what people, how people should be living, um, the kind of like um, way of life, philosophy, ethics, um, and and these traditions tell us so much about how to live and how to be well beyond the actual, obviously, mechanics of of the practice, right? And so I'm just curious. Well, I, the type of capoeira that I've taught is Angola, the Sabento Granji. The group that I, I'm from is Osmolanjos de Mestre Toro. And um, the principles that I was taught by Mestre Pretovelu and Mestre uh, Toro are as follows. Paciencia, resistencia, humildade, estratégia, malicia, lealdade, e sabedoria. And all of those, those seven principles, patience, persistence, humility, those three are the aspects. Those are that like those three, just those three, that's Ifa, literally, in the sense of being patient. And they also work for liberating yourself, fighting tactics, be patient and learning an art. Be persistent. Don't give up. Don't just... All right, I hit him once. He didn't fall. You know, no. Keep your foot on the neck of colonialism and patriarchy. Patience, persistence, humility. Don't underestimate your enemy. Don't underestimate the fact that these structures are are real and they've been in place and the people who established them, they really thought about it well. And also don't think too much of yourself. If you slip and fall, you slip and fall. You can get back up. So those three, you know, patience, persistence, humility, strategy. Malicia is trichnology. The ability to, I say that strategy and action. Trichnology? Is that's that what you said? We, yeah, that's what I love that. Yeah, trichnology. Mm-hmm. The ability to hide in plain sight. And then, I mean, you know, I am as much a capurista as I am an Ifa. At times, perhaps. The reason I say that is because to protect the Ifa that I know, to protect the information that we, you know, we know that we've been taught by Chief Popola and even protect Chief Popola. Sometimes Chief always says this, play the fool. Yes. That's Malicia. That's Malicia. Play the fool. It's mm-hmm. to play. Oh, oh, really? Oh, word. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Oh, I don't know anything about any of this stuff right here, man. Y'all, whew, you got me. And walk away. You know? Like, pick your battles, you know? Loyalty. You are, you know, that's self-explanatory. You know, you got to be loyal to your crew, loyal to uh, your group, loyal to the art, loyal to the philosophy, and sabaduria, which is wisdom, which, you know, that's all of this combined. And interestingly enough, you know, I, I remember... Years ago, I, I, would, I was on a trip with my teacher, Mr. Pretovelu, years ago, years and years ago. We were doing something uh, 
in New York City, I think, some kind of martial arts thing. Because he's, my teacher's like, he's really talented in so many martial arts. Uh, he's a, an authority on African martial arts. Anyway, so we're out of L.A., out of California, some out of state. And, um, you know, I, I was sleeping in the same room as him. And so, you know, this is a great opportunity to chop it up, talk, whatever, da 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 But then I remember, and I, uh, I, I never forget, before Manfred Trotovelli went to sleep, he said, Paciencia, Resistencia, he recited the principles. And I was like, whoa, this is deep. This is deeper, you know, this is deeper than what I thought. It's like, before I, I rest, these are the last things that are going to be on my mind and on my mind. And so I began to adopt that. Before I go to sleep, I say my prayers and my mantra is patience, persistence, humility, strategy, technology, loyalty, and wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I am really appreciative. And yeah, for all of the capoeira work, um, practice, um, and knowledge that you've gained over the last 20 years. Zababa Jasin Ifakola de Edmonds for being on this week's episode. You can learn more about Baba Jasin on social media at Jasin Edmonds. That's J A H S U N Edmonds. For today's Mystica Medicina, I'm reading a blog from makingqueerhistory.com. Madame Sata, the ultimate queer archetype. From the smoldering lands of the northeastern coast of Brazil to the glamorous city of Rio de Janeiro, there's no more appropriate itinerary for João Francisco de Santos, better known by his drag persona, Madame Sata, or Madame Satan. His fiery and controversial personality not only served as a muse, but as a living and walking affirmation against oppression and those who want, without rest, to destroy beautiful things. Defining Madame Sata as a drug queen is difficult because he was much more than an enter- and he was much more than an entertainer. He was a father, a husband, an artist, and one of the earliest examples of a true queer activist who was always there to defend and protect not only fellow queer people but also sex workers, mostly women, black people, and poor and disenfranchised people. We will take a look at the scandalous and tumultuous life of one of the most powerful incarnations of not only Rio de Janeiro's queer culture, but Brazil's. The first thing to consider was the country's social context in the first half of the 20th century. Francisco was born in 1900, 12 years after slavery was abolished, along with a monarchy, the only one in the Americas. At the same time, a massive flux of freed black people and European immigrants decided to make Rio de Janeiro the capital of the young republic of Brazil, their home. Of course, with that comes a whole new set of challenges such as insufficient sanitation and irregular housing. To deal with such situation, the then president, Rodriguez Alves, 
appointed Pereira Passos, an engineer, as the mayor of Rio. Inspired by his stay as an engineering student in Paris, Passos attempted to civilize Rio with the construction of lavish boulevards, sewage systems, and ornamental gardens. Nevertheless, this Eurocentric pursuit of sanitizing Rio wasn't just about its physical structure, but also its people. Besides heavy taxes on the poor and establishing ways of depriving the working class of their methods of sustenance, such as urban farming, the administration of Rio also saw as inappropriate the expressions of Afro-Brazilian culture, such as candomblé, an Afro-diasporic religion. The city of Rio was then transforming itself into a laboratory of social inequity, where a white elite would impose its ideas of beauty and civilization on the general population, which was extremely diverse and made up mostly of black and mixed inhabitants. A slew of the city's excluded individuals went to live and work in Lapa, a bohemian neighborhood in the city's downtown, where brothels, nightclubs, and bars converge. Home to a bustling scene of artists and intellectuals, it quickly became a queer resistance meeting point. This would be the Rio de Janeiro that Francisco would have to face as a small boy at the time of his arrival from his hometown in the northeast region of the country, known for its droughts, poverty, and sturdy people. Consistently, he chose Lapa as his home, and despite being very young, Francisco did a lot of small jobs in and out around his neighborhood, mingling with sex workers and criminals. These were truly formative years that played an important part in his building his assertive personality. Even before adopting his Madame Sata persona, Francisco was already well known by his peers. In 1928, he went to live in a new pension where he'd perform drag routines, often impersonating Carmen Miranda. However, what would really start bringing attention to him would be his involvements with street fights, mainly with the police and random homophobes. He'd often ask the police officers to stop harassing the citizens who were poor and don't who were poor and didn't have any kind of documents, and in return, he would get punched. Little did they know that Francisco was more than able to defend himself. Then the people of Lapa started seeing him as their own personal protector, frequently employing him as the bouncer of several cabarets and clubs. He would always be the one to act against police brutality, whose modus operandi was the same as today's. Aim for the black, the poor, the queer, This fame would finally culminate in his first murder charges in 1928 when he shot a city law officer for reasons unknown to this day. Naturally, he went to prison for the first, but definitely not the last time. He would stay in prison until the late 1930s just to witness a country whose social situation was far from ideal. Getulio Vargas, quasi-fascist administration of the Republic, abolished political parties and syndicates, made up conspiracies to stay in power, and censored media. Eugenic attitudes by the white elite of the country started much earlier in Brazil history, but they remained widespread until the end of Vargas's administration. Vargas's ideals were strongly linked to moral purity and strong work ethics, incompatible with the undesirables Francisco represented. We can't say that the state was officially persecuting queer people since Brazilian mainstream society was extremely conservative, and the mere mention of the word homosexual was utterly unthinkable But these ideologies were still used to target us under the guise of erasing social problems, quote-unquote. Paradoxically, it was during this time that Francisco flourished. During Brazil's carnival season, there are huge street parties where every inhibition is left at home. Naturally, 
It was a very important time for the queer community in the marvelous city, more specifically during the so-called Cachador de Veados, one of these parties, and also an extremely influential queer event, Veado, is a common pejorative slur against gay men in Brazil, and Cachador means hunter in Portuguese, to give an idea of the irony present in the title. Nowadays, Veado is being reclaimed, and maybe this event had something to do with it. Although Cachador de Veados happened traditionally on the street, its organizers also did costume contests as a theater called Teatro República, now sold and under a different name and function. Fresh out of prison, Francisco couldn't deny such an opportunity and competed in the event inspired by the vamp character of the Cecil B. DeMille's movie, Madame Satan. He mesmerized the audience dressed as his dressed as this gorgeous demonic entity, scandalously showing to the general society that it was useless to retain such an unstoppable force. That day, Francisco was left behind, and Madame Sata was born, providing once again, through winning the context, the phoenix-like ability of the queer community to renew itself. Madame Sata would continue to participate in such events, even though clashes with the police wouldn't stop. His life became a succession of getting out of prison and then getting back. Needless to say, he made a name for himself both in the nightlife and in the criminal one, since even in prison he wouldn't stop performing. He was in prison for 27 years in total. In the late 1950s, he started to settle down. His beloved Lapa started to lose his prestige to those emerging Bohemian spots such as the famous Copacabana. The political environment also got worse with the military dictatorship making its way into the high ranks of society. Quite unexpectedly, he married a woman, although it was a purely platonic relationship, moved to the island where the prison he stayed in was located, in the outskirts of Rio, helped raise six adopted children. In his old age, he became a cook, a very good one according to some people, and sometimes worked as a wedding planner. He acted in a few plays, mostly ignored by the press. He died in 1975, but fortunately, symbols don't ever really die. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. A very special thanks to Phil Circus for all his support and guidance on all aspects of production of this new season for La Cura. Thank you, Phil. <laughs>